take your Bibles and go to Colossians 4. And while you turn there, uh, we are going to finish the book of Colossians. And I just want to say what a blessing it has been to walk verse by verse through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And I think that it also illustrates the commitment that I want to have, that I want us to have, to verse-by-verse preaching of the Word of God, expository preaching. And truly, the best way for us to understand the clear meaning of a text is to preach through the Word of God verse-by-verse. And so, I look forward to more of this as we move along. Um, Next week, we'll look at Psalm 27 together. The Lord is our salvation. And then we will, in coming weeks, begin a series working through the parables of our Lord in a series called The Tales of the Kingdom. And we'll be looking specifically at the teaching of our Savior, how he used parables to communicate the kingdom of God, the judgment of God, and the grace of God specifically to those who had ears to hear and to listen, those that were given that ability by the Holy Spirit. And so looking forward to that. And then when I first came here as the pastor, I had kind of marked some series for expository preaching, the parables being one of them, as well as Colossians. We'll also be going later this year to Old Testament. We'll be working through the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord willing. And, uh, and so be in prayer for that as we seek to grow together in the Word of God. And before we conclude the, this series, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, we thank you for your holy and inspired Word. And we thank you that your Word above all reveals to us our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a friend we have in Jesus Thank you that we can cast all of our cares and all of our burdens on him. Thank you that we can enter this place with one, one another in weakness and struggling, uh, even as sinners who have been saved by your grace, who again are struggling, who are suffering, who are going through all sorts of different things. And so every person in this room carries a variety of different burdens. And so we pray that through everything that has been done here today that they will be strengthened And now as we come to your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower the preaching of your word, that you would open our hearts to receive the truth, and that we would walk away being faithful, being obedient uh, as you enable us. And so above all, we ask that Christ would be lifted up and exalted through the preaching uh, that takes place here this morning, and that you would draw our eyes and our focus on him. And uh, we ask these things in his great and glorious name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to read one verse together. It's going to be Colossians 4, verse 18. And Paul concludes this letter by writing, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. One verse What can we gain from one verse? A lot, because every verse is breathed out by God. This particular verse brings to mind the way we write letters. 
How do you sign a letter or how do you conclude an email? Usually we end our letters or our emails because we generally don't write letters, at least by hand, that much anymore. But we conclude with regards or sincerely or with love or yours truly or affectionately yours if you're writing like from a 19th century point of view. Or maybe you just write with anachronisms like BRB, be right back, or LOL, laugh out loud, right? We're used to that kind of thing. We don't really give a whole lot of thought to the craft and art of letter writing. But generally when we write formally, we will have some type of summarizing phrase, we will sign our name, and then we will put beneath our name some kind of title or so forth depending on what we're writing. That title usually will authenticate what it is that we have written. And if you think back in history and you think about letters that have been written throughout history, one example of this would be George Washington. He would end his letters of correspondence like this, your obedient servant, and then he would sign his name. Or here's another interesting way letters were conclu- a letter was concluded. The Spanish explorer, explorer Coronado would end his letters to the king of Spain like this, your majesty's humble servant and vassal who would kiss the royal feet and hands. That's pretty extensive, isn't it? But the thought behind those in, in history, have, in the way they would sign off, would be to indicate that the sender was in the service of the recipient. And so that brings us to this passage, and we would say, okay, so what was the standard characteristic of Paul's closing to a letter? Well, last week we indicated that he would give commendations in the final paragraph. He would extend greetings to different people in the church. He would also give final instructions to the church and to specific people. And then he would have some form of benediction or a sign-off. And Paul's final line or his sign-off had one central theme, and it's actually the same theme that he would generally begin his letters And it's this, it is the theme of grace, of grace. You would always find at the end of his letter a reference to the grace of God. Think about this, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Here's how he ended his final letter to the Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. To the church of Galatia, the Galatian church, he ended this way. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Ephesians, here's how he ended Ephesians. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So here we come to the end of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And Paul does the very same thing. And again, his central theme has been the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the church. And now, after explaining how the gospel transforms our lives, beginning in chapter 3, and how he reigns over everything in our lives, Paul signs his letter with grace be with you. And if there is one thing 
that this church will need to constantly remember and to continually rest in. And if I may say, if there's anything that we as a church going forward need to be constantly reminded of and we need to continually rest in, it is the grace of God that has come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the key thing I think we walk away with, really in summation of the whole letter, and then specifically with this final greeting, this final valediction, as Paul has given us a vision of Christ and now closes the letter, the key truth is this, in our all-sufficient Christ, we have everything we need, and our lives should overflow with grace. That's what he's driving home to them. Because initially he said grace to you, and now he ends grace with you. This is what you're going to need to remember the gospel, and this is what you're going to need to live in the gospel. You're going to need to have grace, grace with you. And what we see are really three things in just this one verse. Three things that grace enables us to do. Grace enables us to recognize the authority of the word. Grace gives us the ability to remember the cost of following Christ and the cost of the gospel. And grace enables us to rest in the gospel, to rest in the grace of God. And those are the three things that we want to unpack this morning in this message called Signed with Grace. So let's look at the first thing. The first thing you see that grace enables us to do, grace means that we recognize the authority of the word. Look at the first phrase of this verse. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And so by saying that, he's indicating, listen, this letter is genuine. This letter is from me. Now, it was a common practice of Paul to use a personal secretary to write or transcribe his letters. So usually, Paul would have an assistant, and he would dictate what he wanted written down. And that assistant, that, that person that was transcribing, that personal secretary, he would transcribe everything that Paul dictated. And then, when Paul would come to the final thought, the final, the closing, he would then take the pen from the transcriber's hand, and then he would write the last couple of sentences, perhaps the last couple of lines. And we know that this is what he did because he actually states this in Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 17, listen to what he tells them. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. In other words, I do this because I want you to know that no one else wrote this. I personally wrote this. And we also know that as he wrote, he was being carried all along by the Holy Spirit because all of his letters were divinely inspired, as is all the New Testament and the Old Testament. There were some people that attempted to impersonate him. That's why he wants them to know, I'm the one that is personally dictating this and signing off on it. He wants them to know that the letter is authentic. And because it's authentic, it presses 
to the recipients that it is also apostolic, meaning that the letter contains, and not just contains, but that the letter embodies and is the very truth of God himself. And the reason that is important, the reason that Paul always presses in on his authority and the authenticity of what he writes is because he is not preaching his gospel, he's preaching God's gospel. The gospel he proclaimed was not something he invented or that originated with him. It is the gospel that has come to us from God. The arrival of the Son of God. God in human flesh. And the truth of what he has done for our salvation. The gospel that Paul preaches and the gospel from which he instructs the church was received from him what was given to him directly from the risen Christ. In fact, if you go to Galatians 1, you will read where he, where he tells the church of Galatia that if an angel or anyone, if, if, if another minister or an angel comes and preaches any other gospel, then the gospel that I preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he says, I say it again, let him be accursed. And then he goes on to tell them how it is that he came to know and to receive the gospel of the forgiveness of our sins. It was on the road to Damascus when the Lord Jesus himself came to Paul and revealed himself to him and transformed his life in Acts chapter 9. And so Paul then in the end of the letter is emphasizing the authority of by which he writes. And because the letter is authentically Paul's, you and I must recognize its authority and that as it was binding to the church then, it is binding to us today. Even the Apostle Peter states in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, that Paul's writings were to be received, even as Peter's writings were to be received as holy scripture. So why do we have to say that today? Because what we want to understand is that when we gather today and we hear the word of God proclaimed, the goal that we should have or the desire we should have is for the word of God to be clearly received and the word of God to be received just as that, the word of God itself. And that it is binding and authoritative in our lives. We have preached through the book of Colossians rather than commentate on the weather and talk about the latest sports statistics or pontificate on the latest discoveries in psychology and the humanities because this is the word of God. This is, when we, this is how we hear from God himself is through his holy an inspired word that makes Jesus Christ known through the gospel. And so that's why Paul, that's why Paul signs the letter personally so that they would receive it knowing that it came from him, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's one other thing that I want you to note here. The other thing that I want you to note is, is that while the letter is genuine and it reflects the authenticity of the Apostle Paul, it is also written with affection. So it has authority, it also has affection in it. 
And so, as you notice, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And the reason stating that is not just simply to demonstrate the authority of the entire letter, but also to display his affection for the church. And we commented on that somewhat last time. All that is said, all that is communicated here, if we go all the way back to the beginning of the letter to the end, is communicated for the good of the church and for the people that are serving there. He wants to guard the truth. He wants to protect the truth. He doesn't want them to be led astray. He doesn't want them to be deceived. He doesn't want them to fall away. He doesn't want them to abandon the truth of the gospel. He cares for them deeply. And in doing so, he wants them to treasure Christ to live to the glory of the one who saved them. That's why when you go back to Colossians 1 verse 15, and he goes off into this beautiful doxology, talking about Jesus, the preeminent one, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. And he is before all things, and him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He wants this church to be encouraged to see the sufficiency of Christ and the supremacy of Christ. Because he cares for the church. And if a minister of the gospel is going to properly care for the church, then he is going to seek to be faithful in lifting up Jesus Not just from the preaching of the word, but from the singing of the songs, to the recitation of the prayer, to the the lifting of the prayers, to the reciting of the confessions. The whole intent and goal is to lift up Christ for the good of the body. And so, there's affection here. But there's affection because he just genuinely cares for these people. And as we stated last week, we, we, we must see the personal touch that is found in the letter. But for them to really grasp the affection and the authority of the letter, they have to recognize the authority and sufficiency of the word of God. And that leads us to this question as we close this point. Do you recognize the authority and the sufficiency of all Scripture. Whether it's Paul here in Colossians, but as we think about ministry and life together, as we move forward, we must be radically committed to the sufficiency of the Word of God, that what we need as God's people is to hear from God's Word. And we have to be committed to the authority of the Word. It's binding. And that's why expository preaching is so important because it forces us to preach the things that are difficult. To go back and say, okay, what does he mean when he says master, when he addresses masters and slaves? It'd be a whole lot easier just to overlook that. Or to go to the passage where Paul's addressing wives and husbands. It'd be easier just to try to maybe conform ourselves to the culture. And to ignore what Scripture says about wives submitting and husbands loving and leading and serving. But because all Scripture is profitable and equips us to be the men and women of God we're to be in Christ. 
then we must accept all Scripture as authoritative and sufficient for our lives in every area of life. Now, that leads us to a second observation. So first, we see that grace, basically, through grace, we are able to recognize the authority of the word. But secondly, grace enables us to remember the cost of the gospel. Now, where do we see this? Well, look at the second thing he says at the end of the letter. Remember my chains. He's writing this from prison. He's writing this as he's been placed under arrest. He is in bonds. He is in chains. Colossians is one of the prison epistles. And so when he, when it, when he states, remember my chains, in essence, that is the indication that we are to remember the cost of the gospel. Paul's in real chains. He's in under real arrest. He is experiencing real suffering as a result of his imprisonment. And there are two things that that phrase tells us. One, the gospel's important. That's the first thing. The gospel's important. The message of salvation is of utmost importance. There is nothing more important than the gospel. And Paul's suffering demonstrates the importance of the gospel. He was willing to suffer for it. He was willing to be arrested for it. He was willing to endure all sorts of things because of the gospel. And to be persecuted. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's what he says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's he talking about? The gospel being a treasure, it is the most valuable thing that we have. It is the most valuable truth that we possess. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. In, in other words, we experience death. How did he experience death? Well, in that same Corinthians passage, he'll say, we are afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not given despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And again, always carrying the body, in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And what he means by that is simply this, is that through our suffering, the greatness of this gospel is made known to others. Through suffering, the gospel is made important for the people of God. You see the same thing when he speaks in Colossians chapter 1, and he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. Why? Why would he rejoice in his, his sufferings? Listen to what he says. For your sake and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And so what he means is it's not that Christ's sacrifice was insufficient for our salvation, but that it is the will of God through the suffering of the Apostle Paul and through the suffering of all believers, it is the will of God for the importance of the gospel to be put on display through our suffering. 
and in this case, Paul's. Because of his suffering, God had used that suffering for the gospel to spread, for people to be saved, and for Christ, the church then to be established. So that's how important the gospel is. The gospel is important not only because of the treasure it is in that it gives us the forgiveness of sin and the hope of salvation, but, but the gospel is important because it is the foundation of the church. In other words, the greatest good for the people of God. He was willing to go through all sorts of things so that people would receive the greatest good, which would be to receive the gospel of Christ. So it leads us to this question. Are we willing to suffer for the gospel? Are we willing? Well, obviously we would say, certainly we do not suffer like Paul suffered. Living in a country where we enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy. We, we, we do not suffer like those that have gone before us. But we need to be pressed in on this question. How important is the gospel to you? That, that, that's really what this, is, it, this pushes upon us. I, am I willing to go to prison for it? Would you be willing to lose your job for it? Would you be willing to fail a class for it? Would you be willing to experience some form of scorn or ridicule because of your commitment to the gospel? These questions are relevant to us today. Are we willing in our own moment to be dismissed as radical extremists on the wrong side of history because we are committed to the saving message of Jesus Christ? That's the reason why we can't bend to the, the, the cultural norms and, the, and, the, and the, cultural, the things that are going on in this current moment. Because they're a threat to the gospel. I mean, nothing, our freedom is not, even, is not more important than the gospel. The gospel has to be the most important thing. Because there is no greater treasure and Paul indicates to us that the gospel is worth suffering for and giving our lives for it. And let me tell you, whether through these words and throughout the New Testament, there are two reasons for suffering we see in the New Testament. Or here's another way to put this. Inflicted suffering on the believer comes for two reasons. Inflicted suffering. We're all going to suffer because we live in a fallen realm. We're all going to have diseases, sickness. We're all going to experience pain and sorrow and death. What, what Paul's talking about here is inflicted suffering directly because of the gospel. Two reasons. One, loyalty to the gospel. And two, living in godliness. Those are the two things. Inevitably, loyalty to Christ will eventually cost us something. Loyalty to Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. Loyalty to his lordship will eventually, even in our society, it will eventually cost us. Because what we see right now happening in our, in our own culture in the United States is a complete, a complete drifting away from anything that would have been loosely related to a Christian worldview. I mean, it's just inevitable. As the culture becomes more secular, we will be, need to become more committed to the gospel of Christ and realize that our hope, 
and our security and our assurance is not in politics and not in politicians and not in, not in Supreme Courts, but our hope and our confidence is in the Christ who reigns over all. And our loyalty to Jesus should be more important than loyalty to anything else in this world. Because eventually, it will be theocracy that rules and reigns. Christ will be Lord, because he is Lord. And one day that will be known through all. And that's why we must be committed to that. But now, listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. A godly life. These things that Paul has written in Colossians, whether it be about marriage, parenting, whether it be about relationships to those that have authority in our service to others, all of these things in, in here, we read them because we, we live in a Christianized world. This stuff was radical. I mean, the, 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 what we've gone through even from chapter 3 on was unheard of. And Paul wants them to know, you will suffer for living godly. You will suffer because the gospel reorients our life around Jesus Christ. And when we live differently than the rest of the world lives, we are going to be looked upon with scorn and ridicule. And so we have to realize that. And so we shouldn't be shocked. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be bothered by the evil around us. But we shouldn't pretend that there's somehow this golden age that once, li- li- that there, that once was where everybody in the country and everybody in the world was Christian. That's never been the case. We live in a, we live in a fallen world. Everyone throughout all of history are corrupted by sin. There's no golden moment where we can go to and say, oh, wow, look there. That must have been the time where everybody was a Christian. Never was, never will be. And so today, even when we are frustrated by the, by the prevalence of evil, we need to simply not be surprised in some level, and we must engage what's going on in the world with faithfulness to the gospel. We should be faithful to the gospel. We should be clear and wise and humble and bold as we stand for biblical truth. But let's just expect that the farther the world gets away from divine revelation and from the truth of God, we will see all sorts of corruption and wickedness. And what we have to engage with is the truth of Christ and be expected that we will be persecuted on some level because of godliness. But now, here, here's what I want you to see real quickly. The priority of the gospel, the importance of the gospel, leads, this leads us to a second observation about this phrase, remember my chains. Prayer is imperative. That's the, that's the second thing. The gospel's important. Prayer is imperative. By mentioning his chains, he says this so that the church will be visually provoked to pray for him. Some of you have bracelets on your hands, I'm sure, these silicone bracelets. This one I have has just a, a, a gospel symbols on it. Others have like prayer bracelets, right? If you, if you ever follow Voice of the Martyrs, they have a prayer vi- bracelet that says imprisoned with them. And it's, it's, the prayer bracelet is supposed to provoke prayer 
so that we will remember those that are in prison in other parts of the world where there is no openness to the gospel at all. The International Mission Board does the same thing. We wear these bracelets as reminders. And so when Paul mentions chains, it's just a, it is a reminder, a visual reminder to the church, pray for me. Pray for those that are in prison. Pray for those that are suffering for the gospel and who are being persecuted. He says this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though, as though in prison with them. And, and, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Remember those who are suffering in other places. Threats of imprisonment and persecution led the early church to what? To pray. It should do the same for us. Listen to Acts 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison. So Peter was kept in prison, and, but earnest prayer for him was made by the church. Wow. Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas, they were in prison, and they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. You see, the problem with us today is a little bit of persecution and a little bit of suffering leads us to first think protest rather than pray. We need to pray for strength and endurance and for open doors for Christ to be proclaimed and lifted up. I think of John Bunyan. John Bunyan, in the year 1660, was in prison for, he was put in prison for 12 years. You know why? He was a Baptist Puritan, and he refused to preach the gospel without a license given to him by the king. And the other thing is, he would not subscribe to, to the regulations that, that for worship that the king had established through the book of common prayer so as a result he was tried he was he was declared guilty and he was in prison and what should have been only three months ended up 12 years imprisonment separated from his wife and his blind child mary he was subjected to all sorts of terrible conditions but while in prison for those many years, he devoted himself to prayer and to writing. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, which should be a required reading for every believer. Spurgeon said two books, two books that were the most important books. First, the Bible, because it's divinely inspired, and second, Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress in prison. And while he was in prison, listen to what he wrote about being in prison. He says this, persecution, he writes this about persecution. Persecution is full of snares and of evils of every kind. Here is the fear of man, the terrors of prison, of loss of goods and life. Now all things look black, now the fiery trial has come. He that cannot now pray, he that now applies not himself to God on the throne of grace by the priesthood of Jesus Christ is like to take a fall before all men, a foul fall. Come therefore boldly into the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Doesn't that, I mean, can you just picture him in that dark cell? I mean, very much like the Apostle Paul in the, in, in, in the early church. There's Bunyan praying 
And what does he pray for? He doesn't pray for his freedom. He doesn't pray to be released. He prays for strength, that he won't bend to the world or bow to the culture, but that he will continue to preach the gospel with boldness and faithfulness. He prayed for his church that he pastored and was now separated from. He prayed for his sweet family who endured suffering as well, almost worse than his own because of his separation from them. And in his prayer, he prayed that the gospel would be even seen as a greater treasure because of his imprisonment. That's what Paul's getting at with remember my chains. To that end, we are to pray. We are to count the cost. We are to evaluate in our hearts, is the gospel that important? Is it that important to suffer loss? And is it that important that we would devote ourselves to pray for those who are on other places imprisoned and suffering for the sake of the gospel? What is important to you? That's the truth of life. Is it the gospel? And will you count the cost of following Christ and pray to the supreme, all-sufficient Christ to sustain you? This is going to resonate more and more as the days grow darker. And as the days grow darker, don't worry, because that's where the light shines the brightest. And so let us see that grace not only and not only does grace enable us to recognize the authority of the word, it enables us to remember the cost of the gospel and pray to that end. And then thirdly, and then thirdly, and just, before I say thirdly, I think of last week, graduates and young people going off. That's my prayer for you. That wherever you go, whatever you do, that your first and foremost commitment will be to the gospel of Jesus Christ whether it's in the workplace or it's in the university. Be faithful to Jesus. Consider the cost. Now the third point. Rest in the grace of God. Grace be with you. That's his final word. Grace be with you. Wow, grace. You know why he ends this way? Because grace is at the heart of the gospel. And there are two things we have to say about grace anytime it comes up. One, Grace is undeserving. It's undeserving. Brothers and sisters, we do not deserve the salvation that has come to us from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul never got over grace. In fact, when he wrote to Timothy, he said, you know what he said? He says, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ overflowed for me. I mean, it broke the banks. And came like a mighty flood and washed over me. That's how much Paul thought of grace. Because he understood how undeserving he was. Let us never get over the fact that God has rescued us from wrath and judgment. Because that is what we deserve. We deserve wrath, judgment, and eternal hell. And you will never appreciate God's grace in the gospel until you're able to admit what I actually deserve. I don't care if you've been raised in church all your life, your parents are Christians, you're outwardly good, we all will, we will never appreciate grace until we understand what we really truly deserve. We do not deserve a place at the table. And yet he has thrown a feast to welcome us into his family by grace. But grace is unearned. 
We cannot earn grace through our morality, our good deeds, our religious practices, our acts of service. In fact, we are so helpless and so hopeless when it comes to saving ourselves. Romans chapter 2 tells us that the only thing we're good at is storing up wrath for ourselves that will come at the day of judgment. There are none righteous, there are none good, we have all sinned, and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And then comes grace. (laughs) Grace. Grace to us. Then comes grace to us in Christ. Because by grace, we guilty sinners are justified freely through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Because he died on the cross for you and me. He took the wrath of God in our place. He rose from the dead. And only through Jesus Christ can we be forgiven and made right with God. And that is all by his grace. It really does mean grace at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? Why can't it be of works? Why can't we give something else credit? Because, here's why. Because God will not permit anyone to boast. Our only boast is Christ. And I think Paul always ends the letter with grace. Because he always wants to remind us that we're only his because of grace. And brothers and sisters, the entire Christian life is grace, is based on grace. And in the end, there is no boast, no bragging that we can make of ourselves. It's only Jesus. I love what Jerry Bridges writes in his book, The Discipline of Grace. I read this years ago. And, and, I, and I, if you have not read Jerry Bridges, you should read Jerry Bridges, The Disciplines of Grace. And here's what he says, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace, and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Every day of our Christian experience should be a day of relating to God on the basis of his grace alone. You know what grace does for me sometimes? Sometimes it smashes me. It crushes my pride to remind me, you'll never going to earn anything and then when I'm low and I'm, 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 I'm frustrated with my weaknesses and my failings but you know what grace does then it lifts me up and whether grace is pressing us down or lifting us up grace always brings us right back to the cross which is the common ground of our salvation in the church but see that's grace defined But what grace does is grace then has to be dispensed, and that's what Paul's driving at. Paul's not just affirming grace. He's praying that grace will overflow from our lives. Grace is not just for us. It needs to be flowing from us. We are to be gracious people. Do you remember the dangers that he addressed in this letter? Intellectualism, right? emotionalism, legalism, this tendency to to get prideful about all these experiences and all these rules and regulations and the reinstituting of all these things that, you know, from from Jewish past that was happening here. And, And Paul brings them right back and he says, this stuff will devour the gospel of grace. 
And that's why Paul began with the gospel and set a vision for the supremacy of Christ and the riches of the knowledge of Christ. Then he went to the imperatives of commands. He starts with the gospel of grace. Then he says, because of that, this is what you do. And now he closes with grace. And so you cannot overemphasize or outpreach grace. You can't. Is that what people think about when they think about Christianity or the church? No, it's not. They think of rules. That's what they think. They, they think that the church is just simply a bunch of people who think that they've got it all together. And that is actually the exact opposite. That we're just a bunch of people who, who, keep the, who just trying to keep the rules, the rules, the rules, the rules. You can tell I'm not excited about the rules. <laughs> we don't sing about rules. We don't sing amazing rules, how sweet the sound. We don't sing marvelous rules of our loving Lord. We sing amazing grace. We sing marvelous, matchless grace. Because it is the grace of God that has brought us together. It is the grace that sustains us. And it is the grace of God that we need that needs to overflow from our lives to others. But so often what keeps us from grace is those what you saw here, pride. Critical spirit, attitudes of perfectionism, bitterness and impatience. What's the cure for all that? Grace. Just go back to the gospel. And when you realize what you have received, what you don't deserve, you'll then turn to others and realize, I don't need to try to give people what I think they deserve. What we need is the grace of God to overflow. Isn't it interesting that the, in, in chapter 1, verse 2, it said grace to you? And then here in, in this, this last verse, it says grace with you. Grace to you, like a mighty channel from the throne of God, flowing right through the cross of his son, grace to you. And now, take that grace, and may it be with you. Grace with you. John Piper says this, and it's beautiful. He says, what becomes of the grace that has been flowing to the readers through the reading of this inspired letter? He answers with a blessing at the end of every letter, grace be with you. With you as you put the letter away and leave the church. With you as you go to home to deal with a sick child, an unaffectionate spouse. With you as you go to work and face temptations of anger and dishonesty and lust. With you as you muster courage to speak up for Christ over lunch. We learn that grace is unmistakable priority in the Christian life. And we learn that it is from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but that it can come through people. That's John Piper. What do you need in your marriage today? You need grace. What do I need with my children today? I need grace. You know what I, you know what I need in my relationships? I need grace. That's what I need. I need the application of God's grace in all those areas. So do you. So the question for us, now that we've preached through this letter, and we'll put this one aside, is will, will grace overflow from our lives? Will we, will we be agents of contention, agents of bitterness, or agents of grace? So here's the truth applied. Have you received God's grace and salvation through Jesus Christ? Does your life overflow with grace and love toward other people? Who do you need to extend grace to this morning? All of that in just one verse. Signed with grace. Signed with grace. Here's how we conclude. This letter has shown us that Christ is sufficient. 
and Christ is supreme. Those who have Christ have all they need in him. Is Christ sufficient and supreme in your life? Have you bowed your knee to the lordship of Jesus and surrendered yourself to him? If not, would you do that today? Are you overflowing with grace? Will grace be with us? May we pray to that end. And as we pray, we will see that it will be grace that will enable us to receive the authority of God's word, to pray for one another for the sake of the gospel, and it will be grace that enables us to rest in the hope and promises of his word. How will you respond today? Let's stand. As we stand, our worship team's going to come. Let's bow our heads. And as we do, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And you say, wow, I, I know that I, I have never experienced the grace of God in a saving way. Would you call on Christ to save you today? If you need, if you need help or you need to have understanding, come and I'll be happy to pray with you. Others will be happy to pray with you. And church, as we close this sermon series, let us pray. Let us pray for those that are suffering. Let us pray that grace will overflow from our lives. And let us receive God's word and all of its authority. Father, thank you for your holy inspired word. Holy Spirit, do your work in our heart even now. As we think about Paul signing off with grace, may that grace now overflow in our lives through the beauty and wonder of this letter that is a part of your inspired word. In Jesus' name, amen.